Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Mental Health TV. Really pleased to see you. Um, we've got a fantastic All Scotland episode tonight, and we're going to be talking trauma, education, and suicide prevention. So there's loads and loads and loads to get through. Obviously, my name's Nikki, um, if you have, don't remember me from last time. But let me hand you over now to my colleague, Vanessa, who's going to explain how you can join in with us tonight. Thank you, Nikki. So um, for people who haven't tuned into us before, um, just a few words really about social media and how you can join in. Um, we do like um, MHTV to be quite sociable. So, you know, do send your questions and comments as we go along and I'll be keeping an eye on them both on Twitter and Facebook. So to join in on Facebook, you just need to like the Unite MHNA page and then the live feed should automatically appear on Facebook. You'll see there's a comments box where you can add comments and questions. And as I say, I'll feed them into the session. If you're not really keen on Facebook, you can head over to Twitter and just look up MHTV hashtag. And you should see the conversation on there. I'll be keeping an eye on the hashtag as well. So any questions or comments you've got, um, I'll also check on Facebook as well. And we'll share them with the panel tonight. So we look forward to hearing from you, hopefully. Should be a really interesting conversation tonight. I think so too. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So I'll hand you back to Nikki and um, and I think we'll introduce the panel as well. Absolutely. So we've got an absolutely packed panel today. Um, we can ask them just to introduce themselves and just say a little bit about the perspective that they're speaking from tonight. So um, can we start with Laura? Hello, Laura. Hi Nikki. Hi, so I'm Laura and I'm a newly qualified nurse. I'm literally three weeks into my new post, but I'm representing the Student Mental Health Nursing Forum Scotland. So from a student perspective tonight. Fantastic. And, and Margaret? So hi, my name is Margaret. I'm Margaret Conlon. I'm um, a lecturer at the University of Stirling. I'm field lead of the mental health programme. Um, and yeah, I'm, you know, passionate about education and trying to bring principles into practice yeah fantastic maria hi i'm maria dale i'm a principal educator for nhs education for scotland and i'm currently working in the mental health improvement and suicide team and the cams team and have an interest in the workforce development around mental health improvement and suicide prevention skills fantastic and jenny last but not least i think you might be on mute Oh, <laughs> go for it. No, no, you're fine. You're fine. Okay, we're okay. Um, so my name is Jenny Young. Um, I'm uh, employed as a nurse psychotherapist um, uh, in a nurse-led trauma uh, treatment service. Um, and I have a background um, for many years working in trauma-focused uh, work um, that's also uh, given me really uh, incredible experiences where I've been able to also teach and educate um, at the University of Stirling previously and also in NHS Education Scotland where I was a member of the team that was part of the Transform and Psychological Trauma Framework and the implementation of the training plan nationally. Um, so that's a wee bit about me. Yeah, so loads of different perspectives to look at these really complicated and emotional um, topics. So absolutely feel free to, to join in and ask questions if you want any clarification or anything like that. But I think maybe we'll, we'll just come to Jenny just so that we can understand a little bit about what it is that we're talking about. And I think sort of trauma runs through this whole conversation and it'd be quite useful I think for us just to nail down what do we mean Jenny when we're talking about trauma-informed care? 
Um, I think if I could answer that concisely, um, the, the war that rages as regards, like, is it definable um, in the first place, um, is always good for a debate. Um, I think uh, there's lots of misconceptions and I think there's a lot of badging and branding going on of what is uh, trauma-informed um, and services calling themselves trauma-informed. Mm. Um, I think um, being trauma-aware, being trauma-informed, but really importantly being trauma-responsive um, in terms of how we react and respond um, to um, people who've experienced of adversity and trauma is, is, is crucially important. Um, I think we have to think about it from an organisational level, not just an individual response level. Um, and I think that it's very much, it's a noun, it's a verb, it's a way of being, it's something that needs to infuse um, our systems, our services, our policies, practices and procedures. Um, I think it's about uh, collaborative working, co-production, co-design, uh, meaningful and authentic co-production and co-design. Um, a very educated lady, Sissy White, um, has a wonderful statement where she says it's not trauma-informed if it's not informed by trauma survivors. Um, and I very much sign up to that. Um, but I think it's about the, the way we use language. I think it's about how we um, think about um, the well-being of staff within those systems and services. If we have a system that is um, difficult to work in and we don't feel uh, well supported in, we will have staff who are not in the best place to deliver um, trauma-responsive care um, and we're at risk of uh, creating practices and environments where there's a, a um, perhaps a vulnerability to um, creating the conditions for re-traumatisation. So it's very complex, it's not straightforward in any way. Um, I think it's from a leadership level right and infused right through an organisation. Mm -hmm. It's about being culturally competent um, mm -hmm. as well. Um, so I think there's many aspects to it and I think it's that complexity of it that has been um, maybe not at depth um, adopted, but certainly the terminology, almost like a taxonomy of we're trauma-informed, but I think unless the people who are using your services, um, if they used your services two years ago, five years ago, 10 years ago, unless they see something different, what is different about the way those services were, what is different about how they're um, care and support, um, how are they being engaged, how are they being included, how are their voices being surfaced and heard on an equal level, then I don't think it's truly trauma-informed. So I think we have lots of learning to do uh, together, um, but I think that there's lots of ways that we can do that. And mental health nursing traditionally is about relationships, and that is essentially at its core um, some of the, the the, the absolute crucial elements that have to be um, right and correct in trauma-informed practice and trauma-responsive practice. Mm. So there's lots and lots to unpack there. So some of the stuff that we're thinking about is maybe the centrality of service user voices and the fact that we're not where we need to be still, but we're moving that way. Um, I wonder if any of the rest of the panel would like to, to come in on that as well. Is there anything that you want to add to that or... Nikki, from, from the student perspective, mm. um, having just graduated, where trauma-informed care was 
three years ago is is completely different now. And within the forum, there is a consensus as that it's it, it's better. It's it's great. It has moved drastically forward, and I know that's that's got a lot to do with Scotland's policy and the trauma informed the, the framework as well being introduced within um, educational facilities. That has got a lot to do with it. But there still is a long way to go, and there is a consensus that there's still. Students want to learn more, they want to, to know about more, they want to experience more and, and really find the balance between placement and, and education and, and, and see how that works and, and see what trauma-informed is actually like. And I think Jenny makes a good point and what, what is it and what does it mean? And it's not just about branding that you're trauma-informed. How does that present itself and how do you recognise that as a student within a placement that you're in? Absolutely. So you mentioned the the suicide prevention policy. Maybe uh, Maria, could you tell us a little bit about that? Because it's quite something quite specific at the moment to Scotland, isn't it? Yeah. So um, the team that I'm working in um, just now, we um, have produced a, a framework for um, prevention, uh, mental health improvement, and prevention of suicide and self harm. And really, that uh, work is in response to the actions of the of Scotland's. Suicide Prevention Action Plan, which is called Every Life Matters. And we're particularly working around Action 2, and that's around the um, importance of developing skills and knowledge um, across the workforce in mental health um, improvement and suicide uh, prevention of suicide and self-harm. Um, and I suppose um, suicide is, is really so multifaceted that, it, that it, it needs a wide response from various different agencies. And the framework itself is set in, across four levels, which um, where the skills and knowledge are organised under six interrelated domains. So we look at it in a wider public health way, where we think about tackling mental health inequalities, we think about how we support people in mental health distress and crisis, how we improve the quality and length of people living with mental health, uh, mental ill health. So it, it, you can't separate mental health and well-being. They're not single topics. So, you know, they're inseparable from physical health and related to other wider aspects of um, public mental health. And part of that, you know, people who are at risk of suicide will be people who have been traumatised or have had adverse um, experiences. But we've all, but we think about individual adversities that increase people's suicide risk, but we've also got to think about collective um, adversities at a population level, that people who live, for example, in low incomes or mm. have, um, you know, uh, in less skilled jobs are at more risk than people who live in less deprived areas or uh, who are in professional uh, jobs, so it's it really is you know everybody's business. I think it's great because you're all talking about the fact that this is not just an individual thing. There's actually systems and context to this issue that we really need to be thinking about. And I wonder if I could come to Margaret actually, because you had some sort of perspective on on perhaps why Scotland's um, moving in in of such a forward thinking direction with this. Yeah, sure. I mean, I think Scotland's got really important history in terms of having a fairly progressive approach towards um, what, what was known as service user involvement in the 1990s, which probably now is more familiarly termed as co-production. Um, and I think if we go right back to the Milan Committee in the 1990s that drew together the 
um, Mental Health Act of Scotland, which was drawn together with service users in that committee. There has been a long history of, of involvement of the people that the services are uh, central to. So in many ways, I think we have a little bit of an advantage in that some of this um, the, these ideologies and these values are not new, they're familiar to us. I mean, it's not its not that it's sorted. You know, Maria talks about inequalities and the inequalities in Scotland are vast and the areas of deprivation are huge. And these are issues that we're, we're really battling with. But at least against that, we have a sharing, a shared um, platform of values and principles. And I think the advantage of having strategies like the trauma-informed framework and the suicide prevention strategy is that both of those talk about inequalities and quality. They talk about inclusion. They talk about involvement. They talk about co-production. And I think that kind of gives us legitimacy and education to be able to, to bring those values quite explicitly into the programme in a way perhaps that we would have struggled to do particularly in the context of the new NMC standards. So, um, you know, I, I think it's been a very powerful influence. And I know certainly the suicide prevention strategy, um, and the way we've incorporated that into the undergraduate programme has, has been received really well by the students. Mm. And they're feeling much more um, ready, I think, to meet some of the challenges. So it's a bit, as, as Laura was talking about earlier, mm. it's about preparing students as much as possible. But... Um, always you have that that sense of theory practice gap we're in a world of our uh, austerity and you know we have a pandemic and resources are tight etc etc so there's always that conflict but I think um, the strategies give us real legitimacy in having values of inclusion and equity in the undergraduate program Mm. Yeah. Sign me up. I'm completely on board with you there. And you even said my my, my trigger word about the NMC new standards, but I let it go. <laughs> it was a mental health nurse thing. I know. I know. I, I, yeah. Yeah. Let's, let's, that's, a, that's another talk. That's another discussion. But where do nurses sit in all this? And so thinking about the kind of the education, the policy, the practice, where, where do nurses sit within this sort of like sort of new new approach? So can I just briefly give an answer to that? I mean, I guess one of the advantages of the trauma-informed framework specifically is that it's a framework which is um, offered out to the whole workforce. It's not just to nurses, but that layered or um, uh, tiered approach that Maria describes for the, mm -hmm. for the suicide framework is also there for the trauma framework. So mm -hmm. at the moment, you know, in our undergraduate program, we have paramedics, we have adult nurses and mental health nurses and there is something in there for for everyone I guess and it's about contextualizing that within their professional experience but I think and Jenny can probably talk more to, to this the trauma-informed framework um, very much can be introduced to a number of different professionals across many different you know contexts so school teachers and paramedics police the police force etc and I think a lot of that work has already begun Mm. Maria, did you want to tell a bit about the sorts of things yeah, that no, nurses should thinking, be? Yeah, I was just, well, mm. you know, obviously when the framework's been developed mm. in a way that it can be used mm. um, by, uh, you know, HEIs, the universities and their pre and post, to inform their pre and post uh, registration 
training. But I think, as uh, Margaret says, the beauty of it is not a framework just for, um, it's, a, it's across health, um, the wider public sector, but it goes beyond that as well when we look at the informed level, which really is about the essential skills, and they can apply in any workplace to any um, workforce um, or any community who have the opportunity to positively influence, you know, in the case of the suicide prevention um, mm -hmm. framework in mental health improvement, suicide prevention, um, they have the, the ability to positively impact on some, their own or someone else's mental health or to prevent suicide um, or self-harm. And in that sense, it does make it everybody's business that there is this sense that, you know, Whatever you can do, it's something you know. You can do, you, you know, if you can do something, and um, you know, you should you should aim to do that. You know, if you can do something to help, then you should aim to do that. Mm. Absolutely. I wonder if I could come to, to Jenny about that as well, because you're obviously in this really highly specialist role, but um, other nurses are working in lots of different contexts as well. I wonder if you had anything that you could add to that. I think. Um... The, the Transforming Psychological Trauma Framework, um, it's a knowledge and skills framework um, and it parallels very much um, the, the suicide uh, framework as well in terms of it, it adopts the same uh, format where there's four levels, so being trauma-informed, trauma-skilled, trauma-enhanced and trauma-specialist. Now, the very thin end of the way, just when we're doing trauma-focused treatments um, at that very specialist level, whether that's trauma-focused CBT or EMDR or prolonged exposure. But the vast majority of people who um, come through our services, um, that's not necessarily um, the, the, the service that they would require. And, if, and it, it creates all those silted up waiting lists, it creates all of those problems. And what we're looking for um, within this, the transforming psychological trauma framework, it, similarly to Maria's, um, it's very much a whole of Scottish workforce, um, wherever you are at that. Uh, and the ambition was that we would have a trauma-informed Scotland, a trauma-informed Scotland being the entry level, that everybody across the whole of Scotland in the workforce would understand a the, the prevalence of trauma within the population and recognise um, some of those responses to trauma. And where we have, like, you know, mental health is certainly one of the epicentres, if you like, where we'll see expressions of distress caused by, like, experiences of trauma and adversity um, across the lifespan. Um, but similarly in prison, similarly in addiction services, similarly in um, homeless services. But for by that, as citizens, like trauma is, is not exclusive to mental health or, or, or people needing a, a service, a special service. But if we can all be much more aware um, and actually be trauma informed as an entry point and across our services, coming from that incremental, um, you know, kind of ladder, if you like, trauma-informed being your first point. Actually, trauma exists in our population between our citizens, and here's how we would recognise some of that and might, might think about not just what's wrong with that person, but what's happened to that person, um, and that being fundamentally crucial. As we work within our services, as we become more specialist, moving through trauma-skilled, which is 
you know, a significant amount of people across, like, you know, our sector, um, certainly within healthcare, we would be looking at healthcare assistance being trauma-skilled, you know, so more than trauma-informed, but trauma-skilled. We would be looking at reception staff, we would be looking at dentists, you know, certain doctors. There's lots and lots of areas where trauma-skilled is, is a crucial minimum, um, mm. if you like. And then when we're talking about actually um, people who require mental health care from mental health nurses, then we should be looking at that trauma enhanced level. What enhanced knowledge is the impact of trauma do you require? And then at that trauma focused treatment level, um, we're looking at, you know, that that trauma specialist. But that's the the uh, Transforming Psychological Trauma Framework is scaffolded by a national training plan that accompanies it. Um, which has been endorsed um, and the you know, Scottish Government have significantly invested in um, the whole agenda around um, that. It's in the programme for government. Um, there has been an extension on that like to, um, into the next couple of years again um, since the 2017 original um, project. Um, and it's infusing uh, you know, across lots of our sectors. It can't be an isolation of mental health. Um, it needs to be where the majority of people are. Um, you know, through our services. But I think as well, part of the, the national framework is, um, and part of the national investment for Scottish Government is this investment in what they call the STILT programme, the Scottish Trauma Informed Leaders Training. Um, and that's for, um, for people who are managing, running, organising and leading service. Now, it's not about leadership, it's about being a trauma-informed leader um, and understanding like systemically what does my organisation need and what do my staff need in order to meet the competencies, but also the wellbeing factors and how do I start to um, develop that in the policies and practices um, and the, the actual understanding of um, what that's like for my organisation, how do I lead where people um, walk alongside me with that and how do we, um, as Karen Treesman would say, model the model um, mm -hmm. of uh, being trauma-informed. Um, so mm -hmm. I think that's hugely important. And I think one of the you know, huge gifts that we have in Scotland is the vision and the leadership of the development um, of the NACE mm. uh, framework, yeah. the accompanying training uh, plan and, you know, programme for government, like, you know, investing in the future of that and not just a one-hit wonder. This is uh, embedding in um, for a generational change. Yeah, you, yeah, that really does come across. Yeah, I think perhaps we just come to Vanessa now and see if there's anything she wants to add and if there's anything coming in on social media. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Um, quite a few things, but um, firstly, um, you know, just listening to all, I agree with you. Um, I'm not sure who said it, but about um, trauma being looked at at a population level. Because for me, I think if we're not careful, we're in danger of trauma just becoming another diagnostic label. So the opposite of, of what we intend. So, you know, we talk on a, you know, positive end of the spectrum about, um, you know, people being re-diagnosed um, who've been misdiagnosed with, for example, personality disorder, in particular borderline personality disorder, and we know what a lot of people have experienced is trauma. But I also see that if we're not careful, trauma is going to be another label that we attach to people. And I think, you know, the comment about population is really important because we all experience trauma in our lives in one way or another, don't we? So the idea that, um, you know, everyone needs to be trauma-informed at a citizen level as well as, you know, in services is really important. And, and 
um, I've been working with um, with schools. So another area where I think it's really important is the fact that a lot of children with protected characteristics, so for example, you know, looked after children, might not necessarily um, meet the threshold for usual CAM services in terms of having a traditional clinical diagnosis. Um, and you know might be missed out and, and indeed are missed out on them you know on care um, when actually it's about services you know being able to respond um, in different ways isn't it and look beyond the kind of traditional um, medical diagnosis and you know to train to train staff in things around you know attachment for example with children is really important isn't it so I think um not really a question as such, but more um, of an observation. But we have also got a question, um, which is around around borderline personality disorder, which is really interesting. And, and I thought we would get a question around this because I think mm. it's so topical. Um, and the question is, um, what is being done to minimise the harm of the borderline personality disorder label? And I think that's just open, you know, for anyone to comment on there, really. Um, well, I guess if I try and start us off on that, I'm <laughs> feeling brave or foolish, I'm not sure which, but I mean, in our undergraduate curriculum, I think we're very keen that we teach to a uh, philosophy of critical psychiatry, not necessarily um, <clears throat> conventional uh, psychiatry as it's understood, and that we also um, teach a number of alternative conceptions to why um, or what, what's behind some people's mental distress. Um, yeah, so, so I think it's very much about strengths, resilience and vulnerability and recognising those component parts in not just in the individual, but in the social system and the cultural system and the community, and encouraging students to think about the whole story rather than just a diagnostic label at the end, which is a really reductionist model of understanding individuals. And I think yeah. not, not, not really of much help, actually. And I think takes mental health nurses back about 30 years. Mm -hmm. And I'm really keen that, that we don't do that. So as much as possible, what we encourage in the undergraduate programme is discussion and debate about what is and what do you think and what do you see and how do you understand that and what might be alternatives. And, and also essential to that is the story of the individual. So that's where the co-production of curriculum materials comes into play as well as um yeah yeah all of all of that kind of you know needs to be an intrinsic part and i hold my hand up and say at the moment i think we're a bit further back with that than i would like to be i would like to be six months further forward but there but there we are we in the, in the new curriculum we we had um absolute direct involvement of practice partners and we really need to continue that and I know the students value that enormously because I guess one of the things that we have to nurture is the 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 the, the ability to be empathic and the ability to be compassionate and these are assumed characteristics of nurses but they're also characteristics that are easily worn down and worn out for a number of different reasons 
and they need to be nurtured. And, you know, I think Jenny will talk about this at some stages about supervision and support for staff when they're in practice and perhaps Laura will as well. But that kind of moves me away from the curriculum. But from an educational point of view, I suppose that's how I would respond to that question. Mm -hmm. That's great. Thank you. Um, Nikki, have I got time for another question? Absolutely. Go for it. Yeah, so um, one here, I don't understand the abbreviation here, and I have asked, but hopefully our Scottish colleagues will understand this. It says, um, where do you think mental health nurses and services fit into SG plans for a wellbeing economy model in Scotland? I don't know what they mean by SG. Scottish government. Ah, right, fair enough. Yeah, makes sense. So um, where do you think mental health nurses and services fit into Scottish government plans for a wellbeing economy model in Scotland, will this work? Are they talking to you about it? And then um, it's fresh in my mind as I just came from an SG council meeting on the introduction of a wellbeing economy. Um, and then it says, I worry about how it joins up with mental health services. It's quite a long question, but hopefully you got the gist of that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, you know, I share I share those concerns. I think I really worry that mental health nurses are going to be pushed into, you know, being acute care crisis folk, and 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 that's not where their skills need only be. I you know I say to student nurses again and again, think of your skills as working in a wide range of domains, not not just in acute services. Fine if you want to work in acute services, but that's yeah, that's fine. But you know. Uh, the growth of the third sector, I think, is slightly different in Scotland than it is in England. Um, but more and more addiction services, for example, are being provided by the third uh, sector. And I know that some of our mental health graduates are moving into the third sector as a result of that. So I, I don't have an answer. I'm, I'm not sure if Jenny and Maria do with their nest backgrounds. Um, but that, that's all I can say, really. That's really useful. Any other thoughts from anybody else? I think, um, I suppose, okay. I'm not hugely overly familiar with it, um, other than I think that given the um, stretch of services um, and as, as we have... Um, you know what what we have at the moment is, is services that are at stretch point and breaking point um and we have to think um differently i think and creatively um and i think the way the well-being uh, approaches to um you know wellness and mental wellness and and you know i think that very much as the role of the mental health nurse evolves, those core competencies that are part of that uh, relational-based care, that are part of like thinking holistically about the person, those well-being factors, um, and you know, as we do, you know, a, an evolution of like healthcare generally, you know, across our health and social care partnerships, you know, across the wheel, um, I think that there are you know, huge opportunities actually for innovation and um, evolution of like the profession. Um, I think that there's core transferable skills um, in many areas um, of it as well. So although it's not traditionally been our stamping ground, actually it's new to everybody and it's new as a concept. Um, and I think that 
coming from much more of a salutogenesis um, kind of angle, what keeps us well as opposed to what makes us ill um, is something that's, you know, like a, a fundamental paradigm shift in some of the conceptualizations, um, and it's definitely a shift away from like a diagnostically driven uh, kind of biomedical system um, as well. But even within that, when, you know, a diagnosis is appropriate, helpful for somebody and they sign up to that actually some of that well-being stuff is still very very relevant there and and sorry just to add jenny i suppose to to your to your comments i mean it reminds me that our chief nursing officer is very much into resilience and um and uh, you know the development of a a nursing population who are who are resilient and robust and resilience is and is is just talked about everywhere and the CNO came out you know with their own issues and uh, very publicly about dieting and waiting and all, and weight and all that kind of thing and resilience and self care is built into the first year of our program in that if the students if the students can, cha can challenge their own values and can challenge their own ability to, to develop more resilience, then they will be able to support people that they in turn work with. So it's it's that kind of, as Jenny talks about osmosis, it's that kind of osmotic effect that if we can introduce and demonstrate change with the students, then the students can then demonstrate that change with with the people that they're supporting. And Laura, I don't know whether I'm talking any sense at all or um, helping I, I was just going to add on about how difficult that is. And I think it took me till third year to, I think it was a conversation probably within the uni about, well, do you do that? And you know, what, what are we actually advising and what are we suggesting? Do we do that ourselves? And quite a time we don't I think we don't focus enough on ourselves and I think self-care is often like a kind of branded word that's used mm. quite a bit too often and I think it is about just looking after yourself rather than self-care um, because what what is, is good for me is different for somebody else and I think it's just about encouraging that person to promote that themselves and to give them to give them the ability to be able to do that and, and the tools to do that as well but it does have to start with you but it's a difficult process because I think we go into nursing wanting to help other people yeah. and actually about us, we forget that we need some support, we need some help and, and actually we might often be triggered by things as well and, and we have to be really mindful of that and I think it takes a lot of self-development almost to be able to achieve that and, and that comes with time, it comes with experience and it comes with kind of interlinking yourself with, with other professionals and seeing how they manage and they hope as well so but it's very very difficult i absolutely agree it's the center of it and we have to look after us before we can look after anybody else and be mindful of the, the situation we're currently in at the moment as well and what we would once suggest or, or or try and implicate you know is it's not it's not we're not able to do it at the moment so we have to kind of think out the box about how to encourage that person to, to remain well um and, and and continue on yeah and i i really like your your critique of self-care because I, I I struggle with that as well because for me it's it's all about loading responsibility on the individual whereas yeah. that again that's very problematic and quite mm. destructive and against much of the ethos that we work towards so I, I'm really tussling with that term at the moment and um, would kind of like to take it out or move it on or do something different with it but that's kind of things in practice I also liked a real quote that I, I think I read in 
um, Jenny, you'll be able to help me, the Courtois Ford book, textbook, where they talked about it's not about rescuing people. And, you know, Laura, you're right that student nurses come in thinking that they want to help other people and that, that's going to be it. You know, all they need to do is help people. And then we go, actually, it's much more complicated than that. And I, I do think there, there is some sort of psychological development that goes on for student nurses in that, in that process. And mm. maybe as educators, we need to be much more transparent and explicit about, about that process, perhaps more realistic as well. Because I think yeah. it's disappointing for some student nurses that they can't just rescue. Mm. Maria, were you going to come in there? No, I was just saying, obviously, like coming from a trans background as well, the importance of kind of early intervention as well, and the recognition of things like, you know, good relationships, supportive, secure relationships in childhood as well, um, to build the, the resilience. I kind of heard a similar quote about, you know, not so in people's uh, life uh, you know, life belts, but teaching mm. them to swim. You know, we've got a kind of, mm. you know, a natural instinct to want to solve people's problems rather than identifying their own strengths and resources and interests in helping them, you know, progress their road to recovery. But yeah, would agree about, you know, the importance of resilience and that and the wellbeing um, arena as well. Mm. Could you say a little bit about ACEs before we move on? Just so that it seems to be coming through. So adverse childhood experiences. Jenny, I think that's for you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the good old minefield that is ACEs. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I can talk about ACEs. Um, and I'm, what I'm not talking about when I'm talking about... Um, so I'm not going to talk about the original 10-item questionnaire and the minefield that that is, but I think that we have to... Um, absolutely accept and be cognizant of um actually going back to maria's point the the lives children live and you know the protective factors the nurturing factors the buffering factors that are around for children um so the experiences of aces one is not deterministic b you are not your aces um see um the poor outcomes to quote my dear um and much missed friend tina henry poor outcomes are not inevitable um so i think that there are um there is an absolute wealth um in exploring the role of adversity in childhood and that's not new um you know our social work colleagues have been very much um you know on the ball with that for a very long time um but what we do know is the um, joining the dots in terms of some of the, um, the, the, the things that happen to um, people who have um, experiences of adversity in childhood um, that has resulted in them experiencing uh, being traumatised by that. And it's not just it's not just the presence of negative stuff um, when you're grown up it's crucially about the absence of positive stuff it's that mm -hmm. double whammy um, where mm -hmm. you know you are experiencing difficulty distress you know fear danger you know abuse neglect but if you have buffering if you have relationships if you have people who you matter to and you feel like they are part of you know your island of safety if you like um, and that's not necessarily um, a blood relative, um, but somebody who cares about you and for you, um, then that can certainly buffer. And I think 
that we can't think about ACEs without thinking about individual coming from a strength-based approach. How do people, you know, have survived ACEs, um, if you like, and survived what's happened to them and living the lives that they live now? Um, I think it's hugely important um, that we acknowledge that um, strength and survive those survival responses. Um, and actually, we see a lot of that um, when we think about um, diagnosis such as personality disorder, whether it's you know borderline personality disorder, emotionally unstable personality disorder, um, depending on um, you know which area you're in, and sometimes it's seen as a kind of nosological dustbin term, and it's like you know there's a there's a bit of um, fear that it's a writing off term, but actually I, I, where I get into a bit of um, you know trickiness around it is how can you call somebody's personality disordered when the strategies that they use to survive the territory that they were you know exposed to um is what's kept yep. them alive um so i think that there are some trickiness with that and it eases is part of some of that debate um in, in some ways but i think it probably takes a lot longer than what we've got today but suffice to say that adversity in childhood matters um but so does inner resilience, individual factors, and so does external factors such as the protection and nurturing that's round about the individual. And that's a bit as much as I want to say on it right now. <laughs> Let's come back to Vanessa, actually, because I can see that there's lots of questions coming in now. Yeah, there is. Um, we've got a few um, a few similar questions. So I think people are, uh, you know, are thinking along similar lines. Mm. One of the things um, is a question about which is really positive. A few people... Um, wanting examples of um, researchers that they can follow um, and um, and people who are doing work around trauma informed care. So obviously that's the panel tonight, and um, so we've had some other sessions, haven't we, Nikki, as well mm. on trauma informed care. But is there anybody else people would recommend um, that people look at who are interested in knowing a bit more about trauma informed care, particularly for dissertations? I mean, this is a bit off the wall and it's not a contemporary researcher, but um, Lisa Cherry does some wonderful podcasts that are available on Spotify. She's got a whole series of them. And um, I, I, I guess I, I, I find them really engaging because they make the whole thing very real and very applicable. Um, that might not be what people are looking for, but right now that's kind of what comes to mind. That was Lisa Cherry. Yeah. Yeah, we'll tweet that as well um, yeah, yeah so we've got one here um, I'd love to know how are these training programs being accessed by organisations and individuals seems a good way to bring baseline knowledge of trauma and humanistic treatment yeah so the um, the website there's a new website just been um, launched it's kind of you know phase one of itself so it's out for consultation we would love um i'm saying we i'm actually i'm, I'm no longer at ness i'm back in a uh, full-time clinical practice but my chums are still there so i'll say the, the royal we um so the there's a launch of the website that's out for consultation um it's its first iteration um and if people go on that it's an open public website and um, you can navigate your way through um, that you can also access on from the website there's a module um, for trauma skill practice 
on what the um, Scottish platform is Turas Learn. Um, and there's instructions there for signing up um, for Turas Learn. Um, anybody can download the framework and the national training plan. There's also on the website, there is um, resources for every level, whether it's informed, skilled, enhanced or specialist. Um, and one of the real gold dust pieces of work on there is the trauma lens tool, what's called a trauma lens tool, um, that you can take a trauma lens walk through your organisation um, and do um, almost like an audit um, and also like a view um, from within the organisation. What is it like? in terms of how trauma-informed and responsive is my organisation and what do we need in terms of skills, knowledge and competencies to improve on that. Um, and also from our, the leaders like our, our managers point of view, there's a tool for them to look at some of the key drivers to developing their organisation um, as a trauma-informed organisation and that's all on the website. Yeah, brilliant. I mean, that sounds like a massively useful website for people to access. So we'll make sure that we share the link for that as well on Facebook and on Twitter. Yeah. I was going to say that would be the same for um, the suicide prevention work as well, Vanessa. Yeah. Um, NHS Education for Scotland's platform, Touras, um, and similarly to Jen, Jen's uh, work around trauma, there'll be resources. Um, we're a bit of a younger work uh, um, Yeah team than uh, the, the trauma and so we've just basically been going for the last year but our intention is to build up uh, skilled um, resources from informed to specialist level and have them sitting on the, the Turas uh, learning platform for anyone uh, to access and we have resources at skilled level and hopefully soon uh, sorry informed level and hopefully soon skilled level yeah, it's brilliant. It's so heartening, isn't it? This move towards like open source and people sharing resources. Just very quickly, there's um, what I should have mentioned and didn't is that there's two animations. There's one for trauma-informed practice and there's one for children and young people. Um, and they both have accompanying tool documents um, for going through like, your organisation, how you would actually do that trauma lens walkthrough um, with free download of the animations themselves. And uh, I know Maria, your animation is just brilliant. It's one of my favourites, actually. Um, so, yeah, there's, you know, really helpful, like, accessible um, kind of resources um, on both um, websites. And, and just to jump on the bandwagon, because I know I have to, is if folk are interested in enhancing their academic profile, University of Stirling does a master's module in trauma-informed practice. Sorry, I had to get that in. <laughs> Um, <laughs> it's one of its one of the only ones I think so far, certainly in Scotland. Um, but yeah, that's another alternative route. Where right, isn't that? Um, well, we'll we'll tweet all those out as well to make sure that um, we spread the word. And um, I wasn't aware of the trauma informed module either. That sounds really good as well. Um, one of the things that's really good as well is this idea that so many people are joining in online and retweeting resources as well. We're getting all of a sudden way more questions I think we're going to be able to get through because we're probably getting near the end of our of our session already. Um, yeah. So please, if you have um, tweeted something out or you have um, joined in on Facebook, we will all be checking and then adding on um, over the next couple of days. So you know, if you don't have an answer from us tonight, you will be getting one. 
think. Yeah, we've had um, a few people who've said that they can't join tonight, but they want to listen to the um, the YouTube or the podcast later. So similarly for those people, if they want, to, if they're watching this afterwards, um, and you've got any questions, then if you um, either put them on Twitter under the MHTV hashtag or Facebook, then you know we'll make sure that we pass those on or answer them for you as well. Absolutely. Is there anything that we need to think of in terms of questions before we start to wrap up, do you think? Um, I mean, we've got a lot of questions. So I think, like you say, um, the ones that we've missed, we're probably going to have to go through them all. Um, there's quite a few that are themed that we've talked about, which are around, mm -hmm. obviously, training and access to resources um, and trauma-informed workplaces, so, which sounds like um, quite useful in terms of the website that you mentioned. Um, and there was one I've seen and I'm just trying to find it again because it was one on, oh yeah, I found it. Just an interesting one here on, um, there's some research looking at um, emotionally unstable personality disorder and borderline personality disorder having close symptoms to ADHD in girls. Um, that's quite an interesting question. I know I worked with a psychologist who challenged whether, it, whether ADHD was ADHD often or whether it was trauma. So I don't know if anybody's got any thoughts on that question. Um, just to kind of talk a little bit maybe about children and young people. I know we've touched on it, but... Um, I mean, certainly, I just I guess I would just want to say as an ex-CAMS nurse and yeah. who assessed many children and families for ADHD, I welcome these kind of debates about what you know, what exactly is happening here, because I think in the reductionist service that Jenny's alluding to, it's too easy to say, do you know, this child has got ADHD or, you know, this child has this, this child has that. And it's a it's a quick fix solution to give out Ritalin. And, that, and that's not that I'm in denial that ADHD doesn't exist. I know it does exist. I've seen it very clearly and I've seen medication work. But I, I, I get really nervous that we, we take too many shortcuts in making assessments of very, very complex presentations mm -hmm. and, and, and individuals and children in particular who, who have many, many things going on developmentally as well, of course. So that's mm -hmm. all I'll say. Good question. Dan, so I agree with you. Yeah. Um, OK, well, Nikki, I think um, I think we've gone through most of the questions, but um, maybe afterwards we'll have a look through them. And just double check because there's been quite a few that we haven't missed anything. Absolutely. I guess yeah. um, what's a useful thing for us to do now is just to go around and if there's anything from the panel that they haven't had a chance to say yet, we need to think about saying it now, I think. So can we come to um, Laura first and we'll go around in the, the way we did before. Yeah, I think it, it's, it's, can I just say it's been great being part of the panel tonight and um, having been a Stirling University student and also been on placement in the trauma clinic as well. So a lot of the things at home, but I think it, it, from the student perspective is that you know, there has been a, there's been a mass amount of work done, especially with the framework and, and it being obviously the curriculum within Stirling being changed as well and being implemented. And I think the one thing, as I said earlier on, when that was coming from our students, certainly in the forum, is that they, they, they want to know more, so we want more resources, but also to be very careful about what resources are out there, because often going back to the fact that we could be triggered, you know, if it's going on a TURAS module and, and, and not being aware of what's what's within that module and, and just making sure that we're protected and, and that we know what resources and what supports are out there in case that's triggering for even nurses to be able to go through that in, in terms of training. Um, but yeah, the consensus is absolutely that, that, that 
that students want more and we want to know more because I think it's it's really pertinent in every area that we go into, not just in ch children adolescent service or um, services within personality disorders, but it's it's and it's looking at the person rather than diagnosis as well. Mm -hmm. Thank you, thank you, Margaret. What would you like to leave us with? I guess I would just say, you know, it's a really exciting time. I'm quite conflicted because in many ways we've got COVID and we've got online learning and we've got the NMC standards, sorry, but need to come back to that. Mm. But at the same time, you know, we have the chance to be able to support our mental health nurses to develop real and ex uh, explicit skills and tools in their bag, which I think is what they most desperately need do you know I don't I think if we're really truly going to move away from this biologically determined mod, model of looking at people then we we need to really build um, confidence and belief that a relational model of care can work it can be effective it you know it can be incredibly enabling it can be incredibly empowering but as Laura said it's much more complex it takes more time and do you know I I hold my head up about our curriculum. It's, you know, we're beginning this and it's exciting. Yeah, but we have a way to go. Absolutely. Yeah. Maria? I'll just say maybe, you know, that there, is, there are so many good resources out there and for student nurses and for, you know, for other um, healthcare sector, public sector employees to use them, but don't uh, ever lose the core value of uh, being compassionate and empathetic to people because that's the thing that people will remember you, you for. Absolutely, yeah. And Jenny? Um, I think it's very much about get yourself familiar with um, the resources that are there, think about how they apply to you personally uh, and professionally. Um, and don't assume that somebody else is going to do it um, as well. I think that um, trauma is everybody's business. Um, and I think that as mental health nurses, we're in a unique and very privileged position to be in a space of um, extreme, um, you know, vulnerability with people. Um, and one of the worst things we can do is shut things down and say, well, that's for the psychologist or you'll need to talk to your psychiatrist about that. I think that there are ways of relationally connecting with somebody whilst acknowledging what happened to you. And I think one of the things that we certainly have to maybe think about developing is some of our skills around um, being comfortable with some of the stuff that we um, maybe has impact for us but it's that whole can of worms thing and I come across that quite a lot and it's not because it's not through lack of kindness or compassion a lot of it is to do with confidence and fear and making things worse but mm. I think that's where some of the training and some of the knowledge knowledge breeds competence and confidence and I think it's about exploring some of that and the last thing I would leave you with is there's an amazing po uh, poem um, from a woman called Tracy Farrell, um, who's on Twitter um, and has Facebook Treasure Trove Track. She has beautiful resources and she has a poem called Can of Worms. And I would certainly encourage everybody go and have a look at that and reflect. Um, oh, and the, the importance, absolute massive importance of reflective practice and supervision. Sorry, yeah. I should have said that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Vanessa? 
Yeah, I mean, you know, trauma um, and trauma-informed care is something that I'm really interested in and passionate about myself, but I've stayed quite quiet tonight, partly because I've been doing social media, but also because, you know, everything that the panel said really has sort of chimed with my own views and, you know, been quite reassuring to hear. And for me, it's all about the humanity of, you know, understanding, um, you know, a person and where they're coming from and, you know, I think the point I made really about, um, you know, moving away from pathologizing people and, and also, you know, that we need to make sure that trauma doesn't just become another another label for people, that it's genuinely about being trauma informed. So I think um, we've had a lot of conversation on social media. So I think that, you know, tells us that it's been a really popular um, topic tonight and that people have been really well engaged. So that's great. And I think, as we've said, um, if everyone can just, you know, who's on Twitter, keep an eye on Twitter, because I suspect that, you know, there will be more questions and we'll have a look at it certainly in the next couple of days. And if we haven't got round to, you know, answering anyone's questions, then, you know, I apologise, but we will go back and look at the comments and try and make sure that we've answered everything as well. And I will also post all the links that were mentioned tonight. So thank you to, for them as well. And thank you to the panel. It's been really interesting. Thanks, it? Last week I wanted to move to Wales, but now, dare I say it, what <laughs> <laughs> yeah. we need is a good offer from the mental health nurses of Hawaii. That's what we need. Yeah. 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 So, thank you very much, everyone. This, tonight has gone so fast. It's been so interesting. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And um, good night. Good night, all. Good night, everyone. Bye. Thank you.